When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Pack. Again, we are excited. We've got someone very interesting for you guys today. So we've got Helen Antrobus, who is a historian, broadcaster, author, and museum procurator. She's based in Manchester. She specialises in the lives of 20th century political women, and her latest book is called First in the Fight, 20 Women Who Made Manchester. Hi, Helen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We are really interested in getting involved in this because we're actually going to be talking about women's fashion, more specifically uh, 20th century political, well, not just 20th century political, but political women and fashion. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. This is a subject that I don't often get to talk about too much in, in my day-to-day work, so it, it's really like a little pet project. I think it's so interesting and, and I'm really excited to tell you a bit more about it. Amazing. Do you know what? Let's just kick it off because I know our, our listeners are like, yeah, just, just, just start, just start. So <laughs> first, first of all, what actually got you interested in women's fashion and more specifically women activists? Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm first and foremost a curator. Um, and that is that is how I understand history and, and how I specialise in it. So it was really through objects and learning more about the, the objects that kind of tell the stories about protest and activism that I got interested in it. And um, it was when I was based at the People's History Museum in Manchester, which tells the story of, you know, the last 200 years of the fight for democracy and equality. Um, and it's a really fantastic museum. If you haven't been, I would really recommend it. Um, and whilst I was there, I, yeah, I worked, worked very closely on the, the archive materials and objects pertaining to political women. It's a subject that I have always been really interested in you know um even at university i was on a bar crawl once and i dropped was a suffragette for a heroes and villains theme which should tell you a lot about you know how long i've been interested in it for um and we had some fantastic suffrage collections and we were coming up to the suffrage centenary in, in 2018 and i was curating an exhibition and program of events called Represent Voices 100 Years On. And it was really about connecting the stories of suffrage and, and activism with kind of contemporary protest and actually looking at how far and how far we've come and how much we have achieved since um, women partially won the vote in, in 1918, but how far we had left to go. Um, and one of the ways we did this was, of course, looking at suffrage material and suffrage material that we had, which very much, it, it is very visual. It, it's very much about the sashes and the rosettes and the medals, all with those purple, white and green. It's very unique to the suffragette campaign. Um, but we also did an open call out to activists to send in their objects and to really share with us how, how they protested um and, and there's one object in particular and you know pink pussy hat was everywhere sort of in 2017 and 2018 after the women's marches protesting um donald trump but there was uh, we were sent one of the pink pussy hats by um a member of the public but she also sent with it a letter 
that we displayed alongside it, which said, you know, with every stitch, I knitted my anger. And I just found that so powerful. And I started to look back through history and, and you can see, you know, in those last 200 years of the story we were telling, women had used their fashion um, and their clothes to really demonstrate what they were campaigning for in a world where they, they couldn't use much else because they weren't given the same rights as men. So that was how I got interested in it and comparing past and present um, with these sort of threads of fabric and clothes and textiles was just something I found really fascinating. I'm really looking forward to this because I know we've got some pretty interesting topics to talk about and uh, various different fashion things. And one of them, I had to bring it up because we've got a film that, you know, I, I personally love that film, but um, <laughs> don't care how historically accurate it is. But anyway, before we get to that stage, um, we're going to start with the Peterloo Massacre. So can you first of all tell us what what is it? Uh, when did it happen? And... Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, so Peterloo Massacre happened in August 1819, um, and around 60,000 people gathered in St. Peter's Fields in Manchester um, to an open-air meeting to hear um, a, a reformist called Henry Hunt speak out against the anti-corn laws, which kept the price of wheat artificially high, and to advocate parliamentary reform. In Manchester, even though it was a place of, you know, industrial change, it boomed so much, um, kind of changed it from a small cotton town. It didn't have so many parliament. It didn't have political representation. And the, the sort of treatment of a lot of the cotton and textile workers was really shameful. And, and political reform, many people believe, was the way out of this. Um, and, and the reformers were demanding for, for votes for men, so it's like universal suffrage, of course, women were left out. Now, um, the magistrate in charge didn't like what's happening here. Um, they tried to shut it down. Um, and in the end, they sent in the militia and the yeomanry. Um, Actually, the number is fluctuates quite a bit, depending what sources you read. But um, around 18 people died and hundreds injured after the militia attacked crowds who gathered very peacefully just to hear, hear about political reform. So it's a really tragic moment, but it also can be seen as a real changing point in, in British reform and radicalism, like the lives of Peterloo and, and the events of Peterloo impacted um, a lot of political change as well, and it was evoked quite a lot by the reformists who came after. So it's a really significant moment, and it's very significant for how women were involved, which is where fashion comes into it very significantly. So how does women's fashion come into this? Well, there's, there's, there's two stories, really. There, um, on the day itself, at Peterloo Massacre, the Manchester Women's Reformist Society um, stand um, on the platform, the speaker's platform, you know, championing this, this freedom and liberty that political reform would give them. Um, one of the most famous women was called uh, Mary Fields. She was actually attacked during the um, massacre, although she did die. Um, but, but it's how women dressed on the day. Now, prior to Peterloo, there had been a um, cartoon brand um, about Blackburn, uh, female reformists, who had, had yeah, who'd stood on a platform in Blackburn um, a few a few weeks prior. And the way they're depicted and caricatured is to 
dress very kind of slovenly clothes they're you know they're very exposed they're they're portrayed as kind of you know sexually promiscuous and, and the way they're dressed is, is supposed to show that but some of them are dressed quite masculine as well like wanted to wear the trousers so on the day of peterloo it's very telling that women come in their sunday best often they're dressed in white which signifies peace and purity and it is a symbol of how they want to be seen these aren't women who are challenging, you know, they're not asking for the vote at this stage. They're not challenging male authority. What they are challenging is corrupt authority. The other side of that with the dresses at Peterloo is that they are restrictive. Um, and when you're trying to escape from, you know, a, a man on a horse waving a sword, those dresses are going to hinder you. And, you know, we think it's one of the reasons why more women were attacked on the day than men. That it is hard to escape and also they're women this isn't their rightful place they shouldn't be here so it's very telling how the way they dress and what their dress signifies and also how their enemies in a way dress them to tell a story about their lives it's really fascinating i'm curious how are these women perceived because you said there were women who had who were wearing trousers how have they perceived at that time well they wouldn't have actually been wearing trousers they were just like so drawn it's that so one of the women in the it, it, the, the cartoon is called the bell alliance which is you know a real twist on none of the women depicted uh, in the caricature um, at all beautiful in fact they've been drawn with sort of um pock marks and, and really awful features um one of them can hoist up her dress to reveal very kind of trouser-like undergarments and it was just a, a point that the cartoonist was making to say this is what these women want they want to be in a male position um authoritatively um and it's very telling how cartoonists and we see it right up until the suffrage movement we're still seeing that depiction of political women are just are drawn and displayed dressed and, and looking in a certain way and that's either trying to take on a male appearance or it's taking on the appearance of a kind of wanton shameful woman and that's why the, the women of peterloo actively kind of repel that image they dress very neatly they dress for to show, to show the world who they really are, which is very clever, very intelligent women demanded something that they are highly entitled to. I'm going to bring up this film. I don't care if anyone's going to judge me right now. Uh, I love it. I think it's a great film. So the film for everybody who's waiting is The Duchess with Kira Knightley. So therefore, everyone should already know the name Georgiana Cavendish. So can you tell us, how does she fit into this whole narrative of women and revolutionary fashion? Well, what, what's really interesting about, uh, yeah, it's such a good film. And you're so, like, I'm going to say I really love this film. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, cost, yeah. Yeah, the costumes in it are so stunning as well. Um, and, you know, not everything is not exactly all the time. <laughs> I, I don't want to get shouted at saying that. But, um, and the looks of Devonshire, played by Keira Knightley, was a tremendously interesting political figure. The difference between Jordan Cavendish and the women of Peterloo is that she is very rich, she is, um, you know, she's aristocratic, she's of a class who can use their voices much more freely, even if you are a woman, and Jordana Cavendish did that very freely. Um, and her involvement here in this story of, of using political dress as a way to sort of show your 
uh, allegiances uh, comes uh, a few years before the Italy massacre in 1784. Um, she was a huge supporter of Charles Fox um, and he was the leader of the Whig Party and campaigned for him to win the general election. And she kind of gathers together uh, other duchesses. So you have the Duchess of Portland, Lady Jersey, Lady Carlisle, all of these very well-to-do women who dress in blue, which is the cause of the party, and, and have foxtails in their hats. And they go around canvassing and campaigning in the streets, which, you know, is, is totally... You know, not so much shocking, but just it, it gets people talking. And in all of the, the drawings from around the time, the, the fox tail is so visual. Um, and it's such a clever thing to do. It's, it's such a remarkable move because she's taken something so feminine. She's taking fashion. She's taking something that she knows people will pick up on and notice. Because, of course, that's what people talk about. People talk about her dress and, and you know, women in the media, women in the public eye, that's not changed in over 200 years. Um, and so she really uses that and turns it on its head. And I found that so fascinating that in the same way that anyone would wear a, rose, a rosette with their party colours on, she's put a foxtail in her hat. It's just really clever. She does that in the film, though, doesn't she? She kind of comes out with uh, these new feathers and this and support, and she's out there when he's speaking on the, uh, what was it, the balcony that she was out on? Yes. Yeah, in the film, you see her with, with the foxtail in the hat. I don't think you see her um, fellow female canvases, but, um, yeah, Kieran Knightley definitely dons the foxtail. Um, and it's very interesting because it actually in the sort of negative press you see Charles Fox being kind of held up by these women wearing foxtails in, in one of the cartoons he's being carried um, on like a chair with the four of them in their corners with their foxtail hats on and again it's that image of you know this actually why would you vote for someone who's being held up by women why would you you know why would you want that that's not a sign of a strong male leader so again, even though she's showing her colours and, and showing her support in, in such a strong way, that way is being taken and put into these caricatures and kind of abused somewhat. So it's the same treatment that women who are of much lower class than her, you know, over 30 years later, are still being subjected to. That kind of makes me a little bit sad because I, I think she's kind of powerful. She uses her status to influence and to campaign for something she believes in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it. what is really incredible about it is how little those things have changed. But, you know, and today it, it's much more. We see so many women, um, particularly women in the public eye, uh, you know, wearing the colours of, of the campaigns or, you know, charities or anything that they support often being knocked down or challenged even that. Um, I mean we see it with Meghan Markle it's exactly the same kind of treatment that you know sees sort of strong women in the media particularly those with influence and privilege um, and you know we see the same for, for working class women absolutely um, but particularly for women like Georgina everything sort of comes at a cost and that cost is often public ridicule so you actually do a lot of work on the suffragette movement, uh, a movement that was uh, well, it was worldwide and it ran across the whole of the British Empire as well. 
So these women influence the activist fashion movement, but how do they exactly do that? Yeah, so this is, I think this is probably one of my most favourite subjects to talk about. The, the women's suffrage movement has um, affected all of our lives as women and as people who can vote and people who can campaign and speak out about things. A lot of it stems from what the suffragists and suffragists did. Um, and one of the, for me, one of the biggest impacts they've had on campaign and activism is branding and marketing. In fact, they were some of the best marketers in the business. And a lot of the way they did that was through using their colours of green, white, purple, um, which you see on banners, on rosettes, on um, sashes, everything. Um, and they've become so popular that even now you see, you know, a lot of it's fake, but a lot of jewellery came out of that era in those colours because um, shops began to recognise that women would want to dress themselves in the colours of their movement. So, you know, the, the women's suffrage movement was divided and fractured into very different organisations, but perhaps the most um, prolific one was the militant suffrage movement led by Emily Pankhurst, the Women's Social Political Union, uh, which you would call the suffragettes, which was a, a term coined actually by the Daily Mail as an insight, which was as an insult, sorry, which was kind of reclaimed by the group and, you know, the same word that we now use to identify them today. Um, and very quickly they realised they needed that, that branding, uh, colours that were recognisable, and they took the white, green and purple. Um, there's a lot of conversations about what these colours mean, but Emily Pethwick-Lawrence, who was key suffragette, um, stated that the colours represented purple for dignity, white for purity, and green for hope or reform which really summarised the movement. So immediately, if women were wearing these colours, whether on their rosettes or their sashes or their medals, they're the three things they're identifying with. And that's really important. Image is really important to WSBU. Um, in their newspapers, before their marches, they share how one should dress and what, you know, how you should dress and how you should you shouldn't wear a massive hat because that might block you know out of the procession you should always wear Sunday best you should dress smart you could wear white white was always very preferable that was something that also happened in the American suffragette movement and for what it represents again it goes back to really feminizing themselves in a lot of the caricatures and cartoons about the suffrage movement they are displayed as very masculine um they're as dressing kind of men's suits, or they're shown as very old, ugly spinsters. So they use their very public marches, their public events, to dress in very feminine, very um, smart outfits to really dissuade people from believing that caricature. And it works. It really works. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Why was it better to look first of all? And who was Ellen Wilkinson and how did she come into all of this? So as we move out of the um, suffrage era, I guess, of the fashion and post um, the First World War, the kind of idea of, of how women should dress and how women should look really changes. Um, and one of the women who represents that the most, and indeed when we curated and represent at the People's History Museum, we used Ellen um, as an example of modern woman in the interwar period throughout the 20s and 30s, who really used her, how she dressed and how fashionable she was to sort of demonstrate who she was representing in Parliament. So Ellen Wilkinson was the uh, was a young um, Manchester Mancunian politician um, who became the MP for Middlesbrough. She was the only female Labour MP um, elected in 1904. Um, she remained the MP for Middlesbrough before she lost her seat, and then in 1935 she was elected MP for Jarrow. Um, and it was during this time that she was one of the, the leaders of this famous Barrow March, um, which was a march Barrow down to London campaigning against um, poverty um, and unemployment. So she's a very notable figure. In fact, I would say that she's one of the most important female figures in politics and in social history of the first half of the 20th century. Um, and she's, she's very different from, from what Firstly, she's inside Parliament. She's not on the outskirts anymore. It's not suffrage. It's not campaigning to get in. She's in. And when she's in, she uses how she dressed in Parliament very kindly. Um, so her predecessor, who is, sits on the opposite side of the benches to her, is Nancy Astor, who is the first female MP to take her seat. Now, you can see the suits that Nancy Astor had designed for her uh, when she became an MP. And they're very masculine. They're all in black. They're very severe. And they were designed to blend in. She wanted to blend in with the men sitting around her. And, you know, I can truly understand that because it's been incredibly intimidating. But Ellen takes a different approach. This is an era where some women are able to vote. And Ellen is one of the leading voices campaigning for all women to be able to vote. And if she's representing those women, she's got to dress like those women. So she shingles her hair, which is famous in flapper style. She cuts all that off. And she wears very modern dresses, which draws a lot of attention. So much so that Nancy Astor actually takes her to one side and says, you might need to tone this down. But it's oh. I know, it's <laughs> terrible, isn't it? Um, and she actually comes forward. So that we don't have loads of Ellen's collections at, well, we didn't at the People's History Museum when we were doing the exhibition. But what we did have was all of the press cuttings about when she first became an MP. And it is incredible how many. This woman was a, you know, former communist, total socialist firebrand, um, who was, you know, five foot in Parliament for the first time as an unmarried woman. And yet, which I would find more interesting to talk about than the fact of what she was wearing in Parliament. 
so many of the newspapers want to talk about what she's wearing. And Ellen is very canny because of this modern way of dressing. Not only is she showing she doesn't care what, what men think is a very feminist statement to come out in these newer, shorter dresses, but she's also using it to make points. She actually says in one of the interviews, like, I can do my work just as well in a dress of bright colours. Like, basically saying, just leave me alone. I can dress however I want. But then in other interviews, she kind of encouraged it. She says, oh, yeah, this is where my dress was from. Now let me talk to you about this. Kind of manages to sort of bring in another subject. And, and she makes herself so visible. She doesn't fit in. She stands out. Um, and that means, it, it, in some aspects, she's listened to. She's heard. Um, and people do talk about her. We need to do a whole podcast on her. That I would advocate that. She's, she's so amazing. And, you know, she she was, you know, an unmarried independent woman who had a flat covered in zebra print bedding, which I just is fabulous in the 1930s. But, you know, she, she was MP for this very male-dominated industrial Catholic constituency and who, you know, they absolutely loved her. They trusted her to speak for her. So she really speaks to changing attitudes of political women especially when you look back at the treatment of a lot of the suffragettes and how they were you know, how they were caricatured for what, how they dressed, you know, they were turned into masculine old spinsters. This isn't happening to Ellen. She's in a way celebrated how she's dressed. But on the other hand, you know, there's two sides to the modern woman and the fashions of the modern woman and how they're used in, in Parliament. Because there's Ellen, who represents this great independent modern woman, and she dresses like that, and she walks like that, and that's wonderful. But then in 1928, when all women uh, over 21 given the vote, they're the, the sort of flapper election, as it's called, because so many of these young modern women are suddenly able to vote for the first time. It's that in a lot of the election you get the Labour Party using it to their advantage. So on all of their posters, they're using um, flapper imagery and women in cloth hats with the shingled hair, like very singing in the rain, very, you know, that kind of look with Ramsey McDonald, the leader of the party, who is equally just as suave and stylish, while the Conservative leaders are in the background in very old Victorian style suits so they're showing that actually the Labour Party is the fashionable party for the modern young woman this is this is who you should be voting for whilst in other um, this postcards that we have display in the exhibition which showed a woman uh, a flapper woman coming to vote and she'd been asked who she wants to vote for and she's like oh the man in the fours which is a very fashionable suit so it's almost mocking the fashionable young women the modern young woman they, they'll only vote for the person who looks the best rather than who has the best policies. So they're still getting that misogyny in on how these women dress. They're still making a judgment um, on their clothes, not judging them as voters particularly well. I love it because they are undoubtedly manipulating fashion to their advantage. But do they ever challenge it? Are they, are they ever like not having it? and they decide to do things a different way. I mean, I think we've seen that so much historically. Um, when we were curating represent, we really wanted examples of that. But I think my... And we see that, you know, in, in, a lot in sort of second-wave feminism with um, challenging a lot of the questions, you know. And the most other thing is, you know, to say, burning. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't think that's such a, a factual thing as, as a political statement. But um, one of my favourite stories of, of women 
using their voice to challenge fashion is something that I don't think you would expect. It's another woman who lives in Manchester um, called, who I, I mean, I don't just about women who live in Manchester, but I, they have to come up in my line of work quite a lot. Um, and this is Emily Williamson, and she sets up um, the RSPB, she sets up the Royal Society for Protection of Birds because she's so horrified about how many birds are being killed with plumage, which, you know, is, is feathers in, in women's hats and on women's clothes. Mm. Um, and she actually said, you know, if you become a member of the Anti-Plumage Society after the organisation was founded, she said, you have to boycott wearing feathers. I can't wear feathers on any of your outfits. And for this to happen in the late Victorian period, it's quite, you know, feathers were in vogue. You know, everyone wore feathers. Um Hats, clothes, brooches, everything um, had some kind of plumage on it. So um, it's such a small act that it's just amazing to think that small act of saying, I'm not going to wear feathers. And she encouraged other women not to. It has grown into you know, charity today with over like, millions of fans. Just sticking with the exhibition in a second, how many correlations do you see between this and the modern day? It's just so many. Um, what, what was most amazing to me was how many contemporary women campaigners and activists were using the green, white, purple fridge colours and really forging that link between past and present, between almost forming like a, a sisterhood with the women who'd come before them. Not only, I mean, some women on the marches who, you know, we photographed and spoke to, actively dressed suffragettes they wanted to invoke it so much but others just used colours and, and one of the most I guess evoking, evoking images from the exhibition was we displayed the Sisters Uncut jumpsuit um, which Sisters Uncut are an incredible um, grassroots campaign group who fight against cuts to domestic violence services and you, you might know them from the, they have carried out their campaigns and moments of kind of quite militant activism on the red carpet at the Suffragette film premiere where they kind mm-hmm. of lay on the red carpet and the BAFTAs and it was the jumpsuit that they'd that one of them had worn to the BAFTAs um, protest um, which is just it's, it's a black jumpsuit and it's homemade again that that this idea of homemade fashion you know to wear at protest is something that's happened over the past 100 years it's such a domestic skill that is so often associated to women that is being usurped something challenging the norm which i think is really important and sisters and cuts is homemade and it had the the image the logo of sisters and cut on the front of the jumpsuit in that purple and green so again amazing to see and the way they were handled the bathroom carpet and taken off by security you could have picked that image and dropped it into a photograph of being arrested. You know, those famous images that are now quite iconic of them being dragged off the streets and away from marches. And it's just amazing to see that those colours still being evoked, you know, nearly 100 years later. Do you know what I love about <laughs> this diary entry of uh, Queen Mary's in that she absolutely supports women and women's rights and everything they're fighting for. But she just wishes they'd stop throwing themselves at the royal cars <laughs> and clinging to the bonnets everywhere that they go. <laughs> she I just thinks that. it's very <laughs> unseemly. I mean, she is a massive feminist. She completely has got George V under the thumb. But she's like, I do wish they'd behave better. 
there's a bit of a disconnect there between agreeing with them and, and their methods. I think I would still say that today about um, things like extinction rebellion and, you know, things that really um, upset day-to-day activities, um, you know, and kind of cause a bit of a nuisance. I think people still get a bit riled up by that. I think we should all, as the three of us, we should start our own fashion movement, the women of history. I'm totally on board with that. Totally. We could do like history hack accessories for people like Ellen Wilkinson and stuff. Oh my god! Everyone loves a badge. Everyone. This is what I've learned like through this is that even things like even anything that is a a symbol of something you want to support or something with the suffering, even if it's just badge, that they're the things that you you see. And I I love it when you can kind of spot another woman or another person wearing the same badge you are, and you kind of feel that little bit of solidarity. It's quite nice. Again, it's sort of it's like wearing your activism on your sleeve. It's a really I guess bonded and controversially though one women's fashion thing I cannot abide is those baby on board badges because it's like they're saying get out of my way I'm more important than you give me your seat do you want to know something really 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 it's controversial but they really get on my nerves I was I can see you're pregnant I would have got up for you but now you've worn a sign that basically demands it and I feel like I don't want it this is ideal because every time I think of something and I think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. You say it. Perfect. I know. In sync. Love this. Yeah. Sadly, for the rest of the planet, you and I are on entirely the same wavelength. <laughs> do you know what? Just to admit it, Helen, those badges are pretentious. <laughs> they, do you know, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I didn't live in London, so I don't come across them that often. I had to really think, I was like, what's the baby on board badges? But yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah, they are, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. The ones that get me, and this is probably one of the most controversial things, really controversial things we had in the exhibition, and actually I'm really glad that people were annoyed by it, because I was secretly annoyed by it, but when you're a curator, you have to be very impartial. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was the, the T-shirt that said, this is what a feminist looks like. Um, oh. the, the, yeah, that the Force Society released, and, which is great, the Force Society, brilliant, um, I can't speak against them. When they were worn in Parliament, and and I'm also thinking, you know, these are made in sweatshops. <laughs> these t-shirts yeah. are not ethically made. They, you know, and I see the principle because anyone could put one on and that would convey a message. But it's also saying, it's like saying, I look more feminist than you do because I've got a t-shirt that says so. Absolutely. And it's almost like, do you practice what you preach? Because I think I remember seeing a lot of MPs wearing them. Um, yeah. And I just remember thinking, OK, it's well, what no concern really for the eight year old Bengali girl that stitched it together. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, you laugh, but it's true. No, I know. It's just Primark the way you do it, it as well. It's like they get 9p a day or whatever, and they're like, here I am championing women while they're starving yeah. because they're making my t shirt. And there's definitely been a bit of a fashion trend with like the word feminist and woman and sisterhood and a lot of these kind of once like grassroots words and things that you know especially working at people's history museum you saw those words around things like green and common and you know real moments of change for women um, and suddenly they're on like a diary and paper chase <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and, and i don't mean to sound i sound a bit snobbish being like you can't have that diary until you go and 
but buying a diary does not make you a feminist. Yeah, <laughs> I've got my diary says I am, but then equally, <laughs> I really resent these people. I mean, I basically had my vagina confiscated on Twitter because I wasn't feminist enough. Because oh. in, in my world, if a woman acts like a dick, then you can tell her that without being the feminist antichrist. Oh yeah, my. there's so much hate on it, isn't there? It's... Yeah, it's just like there's ownership issues, isn't there, with who gets to call themselves and who doesn't, which I don't think is right. I think it's like religion. Do it your way and leave everybody else to do it their way and exactly. stop being judgy. I, I mean, I don't call myself a feminist. I just support equal rights at the end of the day because there's too many labels and I just support yep. equality. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. likewise, if you're going to tell a guy that he's being a mansplaining dick, then you should tell a woman if she's being a dick as well. There's none of this. But we're all sisters together and we should all just support each other, even if we're dicks. No. You're a dick. Uh, End of. You're a dick. And, you know, <laughs> this is so funny how many people um, came to the exhibition. And it was, it, in a way, it was great because we provided a space people feel have those conversations you know for people to be really mm. honest and open about because um, it's not this, you know, it's not this perfect world of green white purple you can't stitch badge onto your you know tote bag or whatever and suddenly have all the principles down and you know people are gonna have different opinions and have opposite opinions and that's okay you know that's that's debate and that's discussion and um i think we should be more encouraged of that then we should be, everyone needs to have the same opinion on everything all the time. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I love that. Helen, listen, thank you so much for joining us. That was so insightful. Thank you for having me. I've it, had an amazing time. It was seriously, uh, do you know what? And I even got to throw in Kira Knightley and uh, <laughs> Georgiana Cavendish and the Duchess. So I am. I very... knew you were going to pronounce it wrong. I was looking at the notes and I was like, apparently it's Georgiana. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Georgina Cavendish. There we go. I've <laughs> corrected myself. We'll get Alex. This is like the whole Ralph Rafe debate, isn't oh, it? God, in sorry. oldie English names. Well, um, if you're ever doing an episode just talking about, you know, historical period dramas, I am just giving you a call. I'm so on board. Oh my God, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. I can hear Alex going, yes, oh my God, yes. When I said we need to do an Ellen. Wilkinson uh, podcast. What I meant was Helen needs to do it. The Helen and Ellen Wilkinson <laughs> podcast <Yeah>. for us. <laughs> that was my anytime. subtle way of telling you that your presence is required again. Anytime, honestly. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow and we'll be hosting another Sharp reunion. Jason Salkey's been busily plotting again and he's managed to round up some heroes of Series 2 for you. We'll be talking to the fabulous Philip Whitchurch, Michael Mears, Lyndon Davis, Nicholas Rowe, Theodore Atkeen and Nicholas Grace. And also Marcus Cribb will be there because it wouldn't be one without him hanging round and fanboying, basically. And he's also there to field any actual history questions if we stop mucking about long enough to get them. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. 
don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.